investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome, investors, to episode 12 of the Absolute Return podcast. Today is uh, Saturday, May 4th, 2019. I'm your host, Julian Klamachko. And I'm Mike Kessling. And today is a special day for a lot of investors out there. They're attending uh, Berkshire Hathaway's annual meeting. Got old uh, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger up there. 88 and uh, 95, respectfully, I believe, still doing it. I think about uh, 40,000 people attend the meeting every year. Wish I could go this year, but unfortunately, just too busy. Got a bit of a shorter show this week. Was out in Toronto at the CASA conference, uh, family office conference. Got to talk about one of my favorite topics, which is replicating private equity with liquid public securities, which we spoke about on last week's podcast. But on this week's podcast, a couple things to touch on that happened during the week, a few big news events. Speaking of Buffett, uh, he backed Occidental to the tune of a $10 billion investment for its takeover of Anadarko, which we've been talking about a lot lately. There's a takeover battle there with Chevron. Beyond Meat had an IPO and it really sizzled triple digits in its stock market debut. U.S. job gains in April exceeded forecasts by quite a bit as the unemployment rate falls to the lowest in about 60 years, 50, 60 years. And finally, the Fed holds rates steady as Powell claims inflation is transitory. And that transitory word was really a, a key part of his statement, so we'll touch on that too. Wanted to talk about this Buffett backing of Occidental to the tune of a $10 billion investment for its pursuit of Anadarko. As we previously discussed, there's this ongoing, really interesting takeover battle for Anadarko, global oil play, but it's really a key player in the Permian Basin in the US, a big oil producer there has a lot of growth in uh, shale oil and really leading the U.S. that play is to now become the largest producer in the world. I believe the U.S. is now producing north of 12 million barrels per day, notching it above uh, Saudi Arabia and Russia. But on this deal, uh, Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett's company, they committed 10 billion preferred stock plus warrant investment in Occidental. And this is contingent on them winning this takeover war uh, for their takeover of Anadarko. And to review, Anadarko Petroleum is on the course to accept either a $55 billion takeover from Occidental. And that uh, they deemed it likely to be superior to that of a $50 billion previously friendly sale to Chevron. Occidental is one of the five largest U.S. oil and gas production companies, and their bid is roughly 76 per share, a 22% premium to Chevron's bid, which is around $63 per share. What this does for Occidental, it really makes them a more formidable competitor versus Chevron, because Chevron's enterprise value is roughly $250 billion, and you look at Occidental, and that's more in the $50 billion range versus uh, Anadarko, which is also around 50 billion. We previously discussed how Occidental perhaps needed to complete subsequent asset sales. A number of investors in Occidental, after seeing their share price decline, came out against the deal. I know T. Rowe Price owns about 3%. They came out vocally against it. 
but this Buffett investment perhaps may allow Occidental to get around a potential shareholder vote. What are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, you mentioned that T. Rowe Price is against the deal, but they had also said that they they were kind of offended that they weren't given the same option to invest as Buffett. And I think that's a anybody would want those type of types of uh, favorable deals oh, like certainly. Buffett's given. He is a special investor. He has that halo effect, and really. No one has the name brand recognition that he has, and that exactly is exactly why he gets those deals. Not just that, but he can get a deal done in an hour in the tens of billions of dollars, and really there there aren't very many other players that can do that with that sort of certainty. Absolutely, and especially with regards to the timing is Tiro Price definitely would not have been able to act as quickly. But in terms of the actual structure of his investment, you had mentioned that it is contingent on the company completing a takeover with Adadarko, uh, but the preps will have a dividend of 8% annually and can't, re- can't be redeemed for 10 years. But when they are redeemed, they'll be redeemed at 105% of par value um, with liquidation preference and accumulation of any unpaid dividends, kind of that standard structure. Uh, But as well, you had mentioned the warrants to purchase 80 million shares of Occidental um, at an exercise price of $62.50 per share. Which isn't even very much of a premium over the current share share price, right? It's roughly 56 bucks a share, I think. Yes, somewhere around there. And so if they recognize any of the synergies of this deal, that is a fairly conservative estimate. But as, And as well, in terms of the term that these can be exercised, they can be exercised up to a year after the preps are redeemed. So mm-hmm. a maximum of about 11, an 11-year 11 option on mm-hmm. Occidental. Yeah, so the yield on this entire investment is significantly higher than 8% just given the uh, the additional warrant equity kicker on top of the prefs. And you want to compare that to the bond yield. Buffett got a pretty sweet deal, didn't he, here? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, their, their yield is about 3.5% on their 10-year bonds. Obviously, those aren't at the scale of $10 billion. So there is a premium in pricing that you'll have to pay as an issuer for that. But I don't think that accounts for the entirety of that premium. Some of that is, as you had mentioned, the Buffett halo. Certainly, and we mentioned Buffett getting a great deal here. He gets to put $10 billion to work. They just came out with their quarterly results, Berkshire did, and I believe it showed a cash balance of around $115 billion. So he still has quite a bit of cash to work through, but nonetheless, he gets a nice yield on $10 billion that'll last uh, over a decade. So he's got to be happy with this one. Absolutely. And in terms of where you see this bidding war go next, there's what do you think? Because there's kind of a couple scenarios. Say Chevron ups their cash portion of their of their offer to um, over fifty percent, similar to Occidental. But then now Occidental can increase their cash portion of their offer. So likely to be a price increase. Or what are your thoughts? Well, certainly the Buffett investment gives substantial heft to the Occidental bid. A lot of people were concerned and. The Anadarko board was concerned with respect to execution. Just knowing that they were relying on these subsequent asset sales, they're relying on bridge financing and things of that nature. But having Buffett's backing and his balance sheet behind the bid, that certainly makes them competitive. So I think the next steps, I believe Chevron will likely match uh, if Occidental's bid 
is deemed superior, which looks like it likely will be. And at that point, the ball's really in Occidental's court. Do they want to increase above their current 76 per share bid? Obviously, some of their shareholders already upset with uh, the current bid. If they got to go even higher for Anadarko, there will be further pushback. So that also depends on how they structure this. Can they get around a shareholder vote, which is needed to approve the issuance of shares? Uh, so a lot of interesting dynamics there. We'll see how, uh, how this one plays out over the next few weeks, but uh, clearly Anadarko shareholders get to enjoy uh, you know, a competitive bidding war between two pretty heavyweights. And I also mentioned the other notion of uh, bidding wars are always the best when it's a unique asset. And I think Anadarko's top tier position in the Permian Basin, it does give them some of the, that uniqueness. Now the Permian Basin really has driven you know, millions of barrels per day increase in U.S. oil production over the past, say, five years. So it really is a marquee play in the U.S. And clearly this deal shows that there are a number of players keen on increasing scale in that play. And that's where Anadarko really could be a kingmaker. Big IPO this week with Beyond Meat absolutely sizzling in their initial public offering, up over 160% on its first day of trading. Now, this 163% IPO pop was one of the largest that we have seen in a long time. In fact, the fourth highest IPO pop for a US-listed IPO greater than 100 million in the post.com bubble era. The other three that beat it, one was uh, called Ceres in 2015, up 186% on the first day. Dicerna in 2014, up 207%. And lastly, Baidu in 2005, up a stunning 354%. So this deal was done at $25 per share, the IPO. It opened at roughly 46, well above the IPO price, surged to 50 within minutes. Traded as high as 72 bucks per share, closed at 65.75. A lot of wild price action on this one, but clearly mispriced by the investment banks. They initially went out with a range of uh, 19 to 21 bucks per share, looking to raise 184 million. That got uh, increased. The range got increased from uh, 19 to 21 to 23 to 25, and ultimately priced at the top of the range but that seemed to be a mistake since it closed at uh, just north of 65. The, the company Beyond Meat sold 18.5% of its shares at 25 bucks per share to raise about 280 million bucks. So you had dilution of nearly 20%. And I say it's a mistake on the part of the investment bankers how they mispriced this, given that it's far too cheap, uh, much lower than the market was willing to pay, as you saw from the price action and the 163% increase on the first day of trading. And what this cost the company was roughly 10% additional dilution. They had to sell 10% more of the company because they sold 18.5% at uh, 25 bucks, but they could have raised the same amount of money at 65 bucks per share, but only selling 8% of the company. A uh, pretty pricey mistake in my opinion. You know, with respect to an IPO, you do want to see some lift to reward investors taking the risk in buying new shares, but you don't want to leave that much money on the table and the company's got to be pretty upset with that one. What are your thoughts on this IPO here? Yeah, and in terms of the pricing, 
they also the first trade when once it did open on the market obviously the the ipo was priced at 25 dollars, but the first trade was actually done at 46 dollars. so even there almost a 100 percent jump as a little bit of defense to the investment banks is that in terms of their fundamentals they lost 30 million dollars last year which is not uncommon for a uh, startup to have have losses but they only had revenue of 88 million dollars last year which was growing at 100 about about 170 percent but looking at the valuation now of the current valuation of well the ipo was priced at 1.5 billion dollars which i thought was steep for 88 million dollars of revenue but now looking at the valuation of three point about 3.7 billion dollars on 88 million dollars of revenue i guess you could kind of understand why the investment banks perhaps weren't willing to go as high as they they genuinely must have uh, didn't, didn't think there was as much demand for this. Yeah, what is that? Roughly 50 times sales for a food producer? Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of, so some of the rationale for this really high valuation is that they do actually have, they are, they're growing at a massive rate, mm-hmm. but as well, they do have slightly higher gross margins already than uh, Tyson Foods. So they, you could presumably, well, based on the valuation, they will be adding a substantial amount of scale, which will result in ideally those gross margins increasing. Yeah, and Tyson Foods being one of the largest competitors in the space. Yes, well, and the the largest meat producer, which right. has was a former investor, they actually held a six point five percent stake in Beyond Meat that they yeah. sold prior to the IPO because they were yeah. planning to develop their own product. And by stake, no pun intended, because <laughs> Beyond Meat produces uh, vegan burgers. So we call it fake meat, but they call it Beyond Meat. This stock is my definition of a story stock. They sell the story of plant-based substitutes for meat. It's gaining a lot of popularity as people shift toward vegan or vegetarian diets. There's concerns about health risks from meat, animal welfare, environmental hazards. They say beef causes a lot of greenhouse gases. It's it's bad for the animals, obviously. So they really have a, you know, one of these page one stories behind the stock, and that's probably why it's trading at 50 times revenue. But ultimately, you gotta look at the business. It is a food producer, capital intensive, asset heavy, requires a lot of capex to grow. It's not one of these, uh, SaaS type businesses where you can easily grow revenue without significant capital expenditures. Absolutely. And in terms of the mentioning their gross margins and kind of the thesis that while at t- they have about 20% gross margins, I believe Q1 they increased to 25% gross margins, but they, the expectation that those continue to increase may be a little bit misguided because right now there's really only two major competitors in the space themselves and Impossible Foods, which has Impossible Foods has a partnership with Burger King, uh, among other, they have the Impossible Whopper. They themselves have raised about $400 million in financing. Some of the same investors from Beyond Meat are in that cap table as well. So they not only are they producing an alternative, but so is, is Tyson Foods. So in, in comparison to a business model that would have substantially higher gross margins, as well as a kind of winner-take-all platform-style business, I don't see that with Beyond Meat, is that this is going to be a very competitive marketplace. So these high margins that they're getting right now, I think are going to, they will get the benefits of scale on the cost side, 
but on the price side, I just see there being more competition. Yeah, you really nailed it here. I think it's a case of substantially more competition coming into the market. You have what I consider no real sustainable competitive advantage, no competitive moat in this business. I think ultimately these vegan-based meat or meat substitutes will ultimately become commoditized and you'll see similar margins, uh, similar profitability to, um, you know, your standard food producers, which ultimately have a multiple in the market at a small fraction that Beyond Meat was awarded in its first day of trading. So. I think I think Tyson Foods their their enterprise value is forty billion dollars and they had forty billion dollars of <laughs> revenue last year so one times multiple exactly. versus fifty yeah versus fifty so perhaps uh, you know substantial downside when things normalize there and you know watch out for this stock I think there's a lot priced in and when there's a lot priced in and the story doesn't play out as expected or as those projections. Uh, as investors expect, then there tends to be substantial downside in these sorts of story stocks. U.S. jobs numbers exceeding forecasts in April as unemployment rate falls to the lowest since 1969. Getting down to the numbers, the U.S. added 263,000 new hires in April. This easily beat the Wall Street consensus expectations of 190,000. It's a big beat there. Unemployment rate fell to 3.6% versus previously at 3.8%. Now, 3.6% is the lowest since 1969. Obviously, the economy roaring pretty good here. Another number within that, the the jobless rate, it was helped by not just the uh, increase in hiring, but a sharp decline in labor force of nearly a half million uh, people in the labor force. So that'll bring the unemployment rate down. Not necessarily a positive thing. You want to see a growing labor force, not necessarily a shrinking labor force. I want to touch on another thing is previous month revisions. We previously talked about how you really can't take any one of these numbers as set in stone. They always get revised. They're quite volatile and they're based on surveys. Looking back to February, it was that really, really low number of 33,000. This actually got revised up to 56,000, so it nearly doubled uh, on its revision. March was reduced to 189,000 from 196,000. But year-to-date, which I like looking at, say, uh, a three-month average or something of that nature, year-to-date job gains have averaged just over 200,000 per month, which is certainly a very strong number and signals a really strong economy in the U.S. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it certainly is a very strong economy right now with, you know, we talked before about the Q1 GDP numbers, 3.2% growth on that side. So strong growth there. But as well, I wanted to mention the that hourly earnings growth is actually increasing at about 3.2% as well, which is above the core inflation of around, I believe that's 1.6%. So what you're seeing is that buying power is actually increasing for workers in in the US which is you know in terms of the it's a it's a really good thing for those workers that they're able to buy more with every dollar of their earnings yeah which is really interesting and that provides a nice transition to our next topic you have the lowest unemployment rate in 50 years you have a roaring economy great job growth great income growth on behalf of workers but you're not seeing that in consumer price inflation and that really puts the Fed here in a bind. And so last week, 
The Fed held rates steady as Powell claimed that inflation was, quote, transitory. Now, this keyword transitory was really taken and analyzed by market participants and really just uh, talked about a lot. So what happened was the Federal Reserve cooled on rate hikes this week as the core inflation came in quite a bit lower than expected, 1.55%, uh, and this declined from 1.95%. What the Fed is looking to do is they want to see CPI or inflation at their 2% inflation target. Looking at the really strong economy and jobs growth and now income growth, they're really confused and uh, they don't understand why they're not getting to the 2% target. The market is understanding this as, look, you're not at the 2% inflation target, you wanna get there, so perhaps you'll need to cut rates. But what Powell indicated with his inflation is transitory comment here is that perhaps he's not leaning towards a rate cut, but perhaps he just wants to continue to hold rates steady on a go-forward basis and see how things play out. Perhaps these transitory factors actually, you know, do come to fruition and inflation picks up again. Absolutely. And in terms of in terms of that, that transitory approach and being data driven, it's just a rational response where I'm I guess I'm a little bit confused by the market expectations here, where some of the commentary implies that he's not even thinking about cutting rates, which isn't isn't how I read his comments. His exact quote was, we do think that our policy stance is appropriate right now. We don't have a strong case for moving in either direction, which more just seems like a rational approach. They're weighing both possibilities, not that anything is off the table. Yeah, the other interesting thing is he described low inflation as this transitory, as we discussed, not persistent. He also mentioned that the central bank would consider policy moves, i.e. a rate cut, if inflation was persistently low. So you really got to note the deviation in language there, and he really focused on keywords. The other thing to note about Powell is market participants claim he has had uh, you know, errors in communication in the past, as we previously discussed in Q4. He indicated that rate hikes were on autopilot, the Fed's balance sheet runoff was on autopilot as well, and those would keep their direction. And then we saw the S&P 500 tank 20%, Donald Trump got very upset, everyone was uh, begging him to uh, you know, reverse course, and ultimately he pulled a full 180 in early January, of which you see the result, and that's uh, roughly 25% rally. Uh, since the Christmas Eve lows in the S&P 500 taking the market to a new all-time high, it really shows the importance of the Fed, how much effect they do have on markets, equity prices, not just that, but also bond prices, bond yields, currencies, and effectively the whole global market. Yeah, and with regards to his communication with the markets, it seems that at one point or another throughout the tenure of any chairman or chairperson, they have been criticized for their communication with the markets. So I don't read too much into that. Like I, it's, it's a common criticism in this position because you do have to choose your words very selectively and it can be a little ambiguous. But the other side is that you know, although they aren't at that 2% inflation target, they're at 1.6%. So that was a decline from the previous reading, but 
it isn't, you know, it isn't in deflationary territory. It's mm-hmm. not sub 1%. So I think, you know, pumping the brakes a little bit and not panicking over, over the language would be the prudent way forward. Yeah, the other interesting concept that you hear from some economists is the notion of increasing inflation target to perhaps 3%, running the economy hotter uh, than you know, previously done with the 2% inflation target and, and see how things play out there. Uh, you obviously have big fiscal deficits, uh, a lot of uh, spending under Donald Trump. And speaking of Trump, he's still out criticizing Fed policy. I know on Tuesday, he indicated that Federal Reserve policy was holding back the U.S. economy. He actually said the Fed should cut rates by 100 basis points, one full percentage point, and restart a program of QE, or quantitative easing, which was really only needed to get out of the, the Great Recession uh, a number of years ago. That was a policy tool, tool used during the financial crisis, and you got to look at that and uh, think what knowledge he has because typically these tools large rate cuts quantitative easing you don't want to use those tools in one of the uh, fastest growing and greatest economic environments ever with unemployment at a 50-year low yeah that would effectively be the equivalent of a bazooka and so if if you use that right now with these kind of strong numbers that we're seeing then what do you have when things really do get bad Yeah, and it's not just that, but if you really stimulate the economy when it's already doing very well, then you do risk higher inflation. It's kind of throwing gasoline on a fire. And to your point, typically these policy tools, rate cuts, quantitative easing, are used counter-cyclically, i.e. to get the economy out of recession. And when the economy is really chugging along, that's a point in which central bankers and governments really want to take a step back, lay off the throttle with respect to their stimulative measures. And that's it for episode 12 of the Absolute Return podcast. You'll hear back from us next week to anyone at Berkshire Hathaway's meeting. Hope it's going well, and I'm sure we'll be talking about that on next week's podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter. Check us out at Absolute Return Podcast for additional episodes, and we'll chat with you next week. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty expressed or implied is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.